Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. First-time homebuyers have long found buying that first home to be a challenge. Locating a home they can afford and then coming up with the down payment have often been stumbling blocks. And those obstacles have been augmented in recent years by shrinking inventory of available homes, rising interest rates, and monthly payments that put homes out of the question. That has led to the return of renting-to-own agreements. Now, these were popular in the 90s, dropped in popularity once market conditions improved and have now returned. But the scenario has changed. Whereas before, rent-to-own opportunities were offered by individual owners or small operators, today, Wall Street investors are involved in a greater number. So what has been the impact of that on those trying to become homeowners? We examine that this hour along with whether renting to own is a good option for you, whether conditions may change in the short term to make outright ownership a more attractive choice, and that's some other options that may be available. We're joined by Chantal Alam, who covers real estate for the Raleigh News and Observer and the Durham Herald Sun. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And Ted Rossman is our returning champion. He's senior industry analyst at Bankrate. That's a financial services company that provides financial calculators, rates, and information on various loan types for consumers. Thanks for being here. Welcome back. Good to be here. Thank you. So I'll begin with Chantal. From what you know from your reporting, how widespread is this rent-to-own phenomenon within North Carolina? It is definitely a rising trend. And it's not just rent to own. I'd like to kind of widen the scope a bit. It's alternative um, home financing. So it's rent to own, it's um, fractional ownership ownership models, it's co-ownership models. Um, They all kind of fall under the umbrella of alternative home financing, which um, many people are, are turning to Um, as an alternative to traditional mortgages. And so, yes, it is definitely on the rise. You see startups, homegrown startups from North Carolina offering these products. You also see uh, companies from outside of North Carolina coming in and trialing these products to see if they would be successful in this market. Trialing. That's a new word for me, but I know what it means just intuitively. Uh, Why would they choose North Carolina as the place to try these out? Everything gets tried out in Peoria, not here. Yeah, well, that's a really good question. It's because comparatively, um, North Carolina has a relatively still affordable market compared to other big metros like New York, like San Francisco. Lots of people are turning there's a huge in migration to the state lots of people are leave post pandemic are leaving these big metros um to find better you know we're now working more remotely to find um more cost effective housing opportunities and so these startups these companies are taking notice investors are taking notice and they're zeroing in on the housing market 
not only in North Carolina and other parts, but certainly in North Carolina in the triangle where I am living, because these markets are active and show still a lot of promise for growth. Ted, let me just talk about the whole concept of home ownership. Uh, it's part of the American dream, which we're going to talk about later on in the program. It's something that people aspire to. It is the biggest investment most people make in their lives. It is also a way to build generational wealth. If you're fortunate enough to buy a property that appreciates substantially in value over the course of the time that you own it, or that you can use to move up to the next larger house, and it does the same thing, etc., on and on and on. But it's expensive to get into, and it's not a liquid asset. You have to be able to sell it at some point down the road to achieve the, the, the gains, and then those gains are often taxed. Is this a good idea for everybody? Or are some people, people and I know you're in the business of, of, of making people, getting people connected to money, but is it a good idea? Would you be better off in some situations simply renting forever? I think that's a really good point. Yeah, some people say renting is throwing your money away. I don't subscribe to that theory. I actually think that while there can be many advantages to home ownership, there can be a lot of advantages to renting too. Namely, you have a lot more flexibility, so you're more able to move for job opportunities and maybe your lifestyle changes. When you're renting, you're not usually responsible for repairs and maintenance and things like that. I think especially when you're young, there is a lot of flexibility that comes with renting. Now, you did point out a lot of good examples of home, home ownership too, whether it's building equity, the investment aspect, the, the permanence and stability, and you can customize and make it your own, but I wouldn't necessarily rush into it. I mean, especially right now with mortgage rates, I mean, yes, they've backed off a little bit recently. They briefly crossed 8% for the mm. national average for the 30-year fix back in late October. Now the national average is more like 7%. Still though, other than the past few months, that's about as high as it's been in two decades. So, you know, don't rush into it. You don't want to be what's known as house poor, where you put so much of your net worth into one purchase, and then you don't have a lot extra for living expenses and repairs and maintenance. I, I wouldn't rush into homeownership. A uh, good point, because when I was very young uh, and when interest rates were at 18 uh, percent, I took out a loan and could not sell the property when it came time to move and held onto it for 10 years until finally I could I could sell it. It was not a it was not a pleasant experience. Um, so I ask about uh, how widespread this rent to own phenomenon is, Chantel, because one of the groups most affected by this and your colleague, uh, Melissa Euler, wrote an article in January 22 in the Charlotte Observer which indicated that our city ranked, and you've alluded to this, to the, in the top 10 U.S. cities for millennials to buy homes because of affordability and, at the time, the available, availability of housing stock. I would imagine that has changed because evidently that's one of the stumbling blocks, the lack of housing stock here, and I would presume in other parts of the state. Is that the case? Well, it is true. Millennials who are aged 27 to 42 are entering the housing market in droves. They are, are definitely uh, um, a rising population who are, are looking to, to jump into the housing market. They're tired of skyrocketing rates. But yes, as you mentioned, there is a chronic housing shortage. Um, despite the fact that there is a construction boom in North Carolina and 
developers are trying um, to meet the demand, they're still working at a deficit. Uh, some people I've spoken to, experts, say that it could be a decade to even just catch up to where we need to be. So when first-time home buyers are going out into the market, they're facing tough conditions. They're facing the chronic housing shortage. Um, they're facing high prices. Prices peaked um, in 2022. They're, they're coming down slightly, but not by much. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to plummet anytime soon, according to experts. Um, yet high mortgage rates hovering in the mid 6%, that's certainly, um, you know, a lot higher than they were in 2021 when it was around 3%. There's competition from out-of-state buyers. Um, and, and so, yes, it, it's tough. If you're wanting to enter the housing market in North Carolina, you're going to be facing um, some stiff competition. So, Ted, what, what is the upside of renting to own a home and what is the downside of it? When we talk about rent to own, this is certainly a more specialized corner of the rental market. I think one of the sweet spots here is somebody who maybe doesn't have a great credit score now, but has their eye on a property that is available for rent to own. And they think maybe in the next one or two or three years, they can bump up their credit score to make them more desirable for a mortgage. Also, somebody who maybe doesn't have the requisite down payment now, but can kind of systematically force themselves to contribute to a down payment fund through this rent to own agreement. Now, you can also do this separately, of course. You know, I think that's a good idea for any renter who aspires to own is to maybe set up a dedicated savings account and, and gradually build up that balance. But specifically with rent to own, the kind of basics of how it works, normally you kick in a deposit, you know, maybe it's something like 5% of the home's value, and you do that up front, and then you also kick in every month some amount over and above the typical rent agreement. So maybe you're normally going to pay 1500 bucks a month for rent, maybe in rent to own it's 2000 and that $500 difference gets put in an escrow account along with your deposit and then that's going to serve as a foundation for the eventual purchase, maybe one or two or three years down the line. Um, one of the big sticking points here is negotiating the purchase price. That's something that often happens up front. And there is some risk there for both sides of the transaction because you may be predicting the value a few years into the future. That's one of the biggest things people need to be aware of is getting that number right. It's a risk for both sides, I yeah. would say. I want to talk more about that because it seems to be not only a risk for, for the home buyer, but it's a risk for the home seller. And uh, you may find yourself in a situation uh, at some point where the bank won't give you a loan because of the difference in the uh, predicted value and the actual value at the time. But we'll talk about that a, a little bit later on. One, you, you mentioned the down payment situation. And Chantal, the last time I bought a house, I think the down payment was 20%. On average, you had to put down 20%. And the median price of homes, at least here in Charlotte, I think is up to somewhere in the neighborhood of $400,000. That makes that down payment eighty thousand dollars it's hard for people to come up with that kind of money is that the biggest stum stumbling block however to actually outright buying or is there some other bigger factor here i mean certainly that down payment is um is a big 
load to carry for, for many people making the median income in many of these places. Um, I think with um, millennials or first time home buyers, it certainly also is that flexibility factor. Many cannot commit to being in a place or a home for four, uh, you know five or more years. That's a that's a big um, it's a big commitment that many are not willing to make. Um, many people are still at that point in their lives mobile. They're they're moving around. They're not as settled. Um, so that certainly is also a stumbling block. And um, and you know and also yes, many people I've spoken one person one woman I recently spoke it to, um, she was you know a single mother she was struggling with her credit score and certainly it doing a rent to own model was a lower barrier a lower point of entry for her. So I mentioned that in the past, uh, these rent-to-own homes were deals between small owners or small operators of, of collective, several they own several properties, and, and buyers. And now Wall Street has gotten into this. Does that refer to Wall Street investors who have been, who have been buying up, and they certainly have here, single-family homes so that they can rent them out? Or does it refer to companies that have been established, Ted, to finance these rent-to-own deals? Uh, which which is it? How has that changed the equation for better or for worse? And I have 30 seconds. It could be both. You know, I think that it does speak to the increased competition here. There are some fintech real estate kind of startups, companies like Divi Homes and Zero Down and Dream America and others where, you know, you can you can find a whole bunch of these through a, a Google search. And I think that on one hand, that has opened up more competition, um, but it, it's also something that has sort of complicated the whole process for some, um, you know, just sort of not even knowing where to get started with this. We're going to talk about the process, the pros and the cons for buyers and sellers, why you would want to participate in this on either side of that equation and more when we come back at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about this relatively, well, it's new to some. It's a returning concept to others, and that is rent to own when you're in the home buying market for those people who just can't cobble together the down payment, etc. Ted Rossman is with us. He's a senior industry analyst for Bankrate. And Chantal Alam is a real estate reporter for both the Raleigh News and Observer and the Durham, the Durham Herald Sun. Chantal, in most cases, are these deals arranged by realtors or through other entities? Or can you just do this on your own if you want to rent to own? Um, you know, certainly I think the realtor still plays a big part. Um, as Ted mentioned, many of these um, platforms are local startups who are, who are providing these products. They will usually work with um, accredited um, realtors who often bring their clients to them. So realtors do play a part in making these deals go through. And I, I just wanted to follow up on a, a comment that we were um, discussing earlier about why someone might want to do this. Another big factor is the competition. 
because there are so many out of state investors with all cash offers, um, teaming up, partnering with an investor who has all cash um, allows the buyer to, to be able to compete and not get an outbid by other buyers. So that is also a big draw card for many people who are turning to these rent-to-own models. Uh, are these properties that are rent-to-own, that end up being rent-to-own properties, are they being marketed as such? Or is this something that a homeowner, through a realtor or even just to themselves, they find a house that they like, they can't get into it because they can't afford the down payment, etc. Can you then, are most of these deals through, uh, marketed as rent-to-own, or can you talk people into you know, making them rent-to-own? Is, is that a phenomenon that happens often enough? So I would say it's, you know, case by case. Many of these startups that, um, these real estate startups offering these models say, yes, you can find a home and then it would have to go through an accreditation process to become part of their model, but it is possible. And so buyers have been finding homes that meet their needs, specific needs, and taking them to the company to get the home accredited so that they can purchase it with an all-cash offer. Uh, Ted, I, it, uh, from what I read yesterday, uh, millennials seem to be the ones taking advantage of this the most. That may not still be the case, but I'd like to know what age group seems to gravitate toward these opportunities and what kind of individual or individuals does this make good sense for? I think millennials do make a lot of sense just because of that age bracket. We're often talking something like mid-20s to early 40s. I mean, these are often the kind of people that are getting married, having kids, buying homes. So I, I think that is a sweet spot. I think Gen Zers are increasingly moving up the ranks. And I think also, you know, because they have so many other financial pressures like student loans, you know, maybe be looking at this as, as kind of a more affordable alternative. I think from a buyer standpoint, you're often talking about somebody who maybe doesn't quite have the right credit score or the right down payment right now, but they can hopefully grow into it in the next couple of years. We haven't talked as much about the seller side. I think that's a unique aspect of this because most people, when they want to sell their home, they want to sell it quickly. They want to get the money now. I actually think that's even more of an obstacle is finding a seller who might be amenable to this delayed gratification where they may not fully realize their investment for two or three years. Now they are getting rent checks along the way, although they're also responsible for upkeep and repairs and property taxes and, and things like that. Um, so it, it is a little bit of a unique kind of situation, but um, you know, there are some people who, who may be willing to take a chance on this and um, well, well, you know, kind well, of get some income now and then the full sale later on. We'll talk about that because it seems to me that most people, when they sell their homes, have their uh, they have to live someplace. So they have their eye on another property and they either want the equity or need the equity in their home to uh, make the down payment on that property or maybe go into a property with no mortgage because they're downsizing, et cetera. It would take a very specialized person who could move out of the home they own and just collect rent, rent checks for a period of time. How do they then cover the cost of their new home? What may be more likely is somebody who's already renting out this home. So more of uh, a property manager investment kind of type. And then 
so think about it this way, you know, maybe there's somebody who they've been a landlord for a while, but they're thinking of getting out of that game in the next couple of years. You know, maybe they're planning to retire or move out of state or, you know, maybe they've been a longtime landlord, but they're kind of looking for a bit of an exit path. You know, there could be an opportunity to just sell the home outright, but sometimes people may want to sort of ease out of it, maybe kind of like other investments. They like the the kind of steady dividend-like income of monthly rent checks, but they also want an end date in mind. Maybe they even have a longstanding tenant who they're looking to sell this home to, but the timing's not quite right now, but maybe it's right in a couple of years. Again, it's a specialized kind of case, but that may be an example. Or like we've said, maybe some of these more investment type um, property managers. So not so much the mom and pop, but more the, the larger investment firm that's doing this as a business. Millennials are sometimes often unfairly characterized as being uh, perhaps, I don't know if lazy is the right word, but uh, entitled. And they want they have certain standards that must be met. But Bankrate conducted some surveys on the sacrifices that millennials are willing to make to become a homeowner. They are interesting. What did you find? Yeah, we see people making all kinds of lifestyle adjustments. You know, sometimes it means trading off for a, a longer commute. Sometimes it means delaying marriage or, or having kids. Um, you know, people are willing to compromise on the features of the home sometimes, and they feel like they can maybe renovate the kitchen later on or update a bathroom or, or something like that. Um, you know, it, it is a difficult tug of war for a lot of people because there's a lot of hands in that cookie jar, right? You think about the monthly paycheck and where's it going? I mean, it's going to student loans. It's going to higher costs for just about everything. So I, I do think for a lot of people, they're having to be creative. There's been a huge rise in the number of people buying homes with someone they're not married to. And sometimes it's more of a boyfriend, girlfriend kind of thing, but other times it's multi-generational. Maybe it's parents and their adult children, or, or even sometimes it's grandparents and, and adult grandchildren. Uh, sometimes it's friends there are some people being creative in that way, too. And they're willing to make sacrifices. They're not set in their ways, and they're not necessarily looking for the perfect dream home. Chantal. So just to kind of piggyback on what Ted said, um, I recently wrote about a startup called Plum. It's a Durham-based fractional ownership platform. And it's actually a matchmaking service helping to bring co-buyers together. So essentially, in this case, there were four couples, all strangers, all wanting to invest in a second property, or in some case, in one case, a first, um, a, 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 their first home, but they, they wanted to do it, they wanted to pull their resources together, and they all met on this platform called Plum. And so they ended up as four, four couples, four strangers, they bought a vacation home in Topsail Island together. And, um, and yes, that's, for them, it made sense. It was a way to have a vacation home, but also have an investment, but, but also, you know, by themselves, they could probably only afford, you know, a, a two bedroom condo, but together they were able to afford a $1 million 
uh, home on the beach. But does that make sense? I mean, we've heard these horror stories. First of all, married couples uh, are, are on the uh, ownership agreement together, but then divorces happen, and then you got to divide that property up. Unmarried couples, as you pointed out, are increasingly coming into this together. They break up on occasion. It's even more dangerous, it would seem to me, for friends to do this together, and particularly individuals who don't know each other, who meet on a social media platform, buying a $1 million home. Does this make sense? And Ted, why would mortgage companies want to be in that arrangement? Well, for the mortgage company, I mean, they're probably confident in their underwriting and, and they are looking to make a sale. So I guess if the numbers add up, you know, maybe they're amenable to it. I, I understand what you're saying from a lifestyle standpoint about it can get complicated. I mean, even when you have two people involved, if the relationship doesn't last, that's an issue. When you're talking about, like in Chantal's example, those four couples that didn't even know each other, that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. But the appeal, you know, like she said, is the the ability to afford a much nicer home. And uh, it's almost like a new twist on the old uh, timeshare kind of model. Yeah. Although, uh, you know, I think timeshares are a whole other corner that, that has a lot of fees and sometimes a stigma associated with it. But in this case, maybe it's almost like the kinder, gentler version of that. It's like, yeah, well, you know, hey, we're going to pool our resources. We're each going to get this home one quarter of the year and it's a really nice place. And But yeah, I, I get the downside too about... What happens if somebody wants out of the deal? What happens if there's repairs needed? What happens if you don't agree on anything from, you know, maintenance to paint colors and, you know, all that kind of stuff? So not for everybody, but um, I think the appeal is being able to stretch your dollar further. And Chantal, you wrote about another company that is involved in this out of San Francisco called Onify. Yeah. Uh, and, and they were, I think, involved somewhere in the triangle area. Uh, how prevalent is this fractional ownership model? I mean, it, it's it's definitely a rising trend. I think in just the last few months, I've I've written about three or four companies offering, you know, a variation or their own spin on a co-ownership or shared equity model. Um, so yes, it, it is it is very common. Um, in this example, Onify. Um, they're an out-of-state company who came in and their first client was this couple, this Raleigh couple who had twins with extreme special needs. And they were struggling to find a, a single story home in their at their price point, which was you know under $500,000. And, and right when they found the home of their dreams, um, the husband lost his job. And so at that point, the realtor got them in touch with Onify and within less than a month, the Onify had made an all cash offer, allowed this company, this family to get into the home and, and they were able to finally settle down after what was a grueling four year process of home hunting. So fractional ownership is one aspect of this, but then there are other rent-to-buy options, Ted, and there's two that I know of, and maybe there are others, and you can educate me on this. One is a lease option, and the other is a lease purchase. Explain the difference and why you would choose one over the other. 
the lease purchase is more binding than the lease option. So, you know, with that word option, meaning you could buy it, but you don't necessarily have to. The purchase, on the other hand, you know, you're entering into a contract that you're making that commitment. So maybe one, two, three years down the line, that rental is is supposed to turn into a purchase. Now, maybe there's still a way to back out, but you probably are going to lose some deposit money and could potentially be sued for breach of contract. Whereas the option, it, it is more like it sounds. It, it is more optional or at your discretion if you follow through with it. So that's another bit of fine print for people to understand if they are interested in a rent to own kind of agreement is just, you know, how binding is it? What are the fees? And, and coming back to an earlier point, I do think a, a big consideration is the home value that you're committing to. Oftentimes it's agreed to upfront. Sometimes though, maybe there's an option to set that at a later date. So maybe you have an appraiser come in and and they tell you, you know, three years later what it's worth. That's more buyer friendly, I would say, than than committing to a certain number years in advance. And mm. you don't know, you know, are you overpaying? Are you underpaying? Um, so that, that home value is, is a big sticking point, especially with values being very dynamic. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go back to something. A lot of people are paying, I know just anecdotally, a lot of people are paying more for rent for a two-bedroom or even a one-bedroom apartment in the Charlotte area than I'm paying for my house every month. And rents continue to rise, Chantel, here and around the state. When you rent to own, I would imagine, maybe I'm wrong, you can correct me, that the rent you're going to pay for that house is more than what you're paying for the apartment because part of that rent is building equity toward the down payment for the eventual per purchase of that. So what do these rent-to-own uh, rentals go for? What, what's, the, what's the rate on average? Well, well I, it has to be case-specific. You know, case it depends what you're renting and, and what's on the market. Um, you know, talking about renting versus buying, I just did a story this week and it definitely, even though rents are generally going, rising faster than home prices, it is still cheaper to rent than to own um, in North Carolina. And Be in, because, because you're not responsible for maintenance or, or why? Um, well, I mean, for example, in Raleigh, we're starting to have recalculation of taxes, um, you know, with home, the rise in home values, the rise in taxes. So, so to, the bottom line is to be a renter and to be an owner for most people, it, it's a challenge either way. Um, in the, the study that I just wrote about both renters and homeowners are cost burdened, which means they're paying more than 30% of their income on housing costs. So since you're paying a premium every month in the rent for these rent to own properties, as opposed to what you're probably paying for an apartment, uh, and that that is being applied toward your eventual down payment, it would seem to me that you're paying more than rent in rent than ever before. And does it also mean, Chantal, that you should be very particular about the property you choose to do this on? I mean, it would seem to me that this property that you're eventually thinking about buying and that you're paying more for every month in rent because it's going toward buying it, this property should have an excellent bill of health. Well, am I wrong about that? 
Well, look, they're trade-offs. Um, a company that I recently wrote about, Acre, which is kind of a glorified rent-to-own scheme, you know, they they would argue it's uh, you know it's a better cost um, it's better cost value than renting and owning. In other words, you might be paying a little bit more in renting, but you're actually um, building equity without having the financial risk of owning. So it, it's kind of the best, they're trying to market it as the best of both worlds. And giving so you, it, it's kind of getting your foot wet in the property market. So when we come back, we're gonna talk about some things to consider when you go into these agreements, some of the nuts and bolts of what to expect and how to structure and how these things are structured. In fact, we're coming right back at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about renting to own a home in, in today's market, which is a, a phenomenon that has returned and is experiencing a surge in popularity for all the reasons we're talking about, the tight real estate market, the difficulty in coming up with a down payment, and the, uh, the, the money problems that young people face because of a plethora of uh, challenges beyond their control. Chantal Alam is with us, real estate reporter for the Raleigh News and Observer and the Durham Herald Sun. And Ted Rossman is here, senior industry analyst for Bankrate. Ted, Ted, let's talk about some of the particulars about how these rent-to-own deals are structured. You are paying, you find a, you find a house you like, they're willing to rent to own it. You're paying a premium over the rental cost because that money's being applied toward your down payment. How long does it normally take for you to get to the point where you've accumulated enough equity toward a down payment so that now you buy the house from the owner? How long is that? It's take? usually one to three years. So often the way it works is that you kick in that initial deposit, maybe something between one and 7% of the home value. So lower than the traditional 20% down payment. But we should mention too that, you know, as we talk about alternatives, you can get FHA loans for as little as three and a half percent down. If okay. you're a veteran, VA loans have really good terms and often very low down payment requirements. So there are other options. But, you know, back to rent to own, let's say one to seven percent deposit. You're also going to pay something over and above the normal rent. You know, maybe it's 20 or 25 percent higher. The difference is what gets put into that escrow account that eventually goes toward the purchase. So, you know, if you're paying, let's say, fifteen hundred in regular rent and then another five hundred in this rent to own agreement, yes, you're paying two thousand bucks a month. Not all of that gets credited for the eventual purchase. It's right. only that rent credit. In my example, the the five hundred bucks. Um, it's kind of a form of forced savings in a way that you're setting this money aside. You have this agreement in place. And um, then once the term ends, then you're probably going to get a mortgage at that point. Um, you probably don't have enough set aside in this escrow account to buy the house outright. It's so usually more of just a deposit. So circumstances change. Life circumstances change. What happens if a potential buyer enters into this agreement and then for whatever reason needs to terminate that agreement prematurely? Perhaps they get transferred or their economic circumstances change and they really can't afford to buy this house. What happens? 
If it's the lease purchase option, unfortunately, you've entered into a binding contract. So at that point, your alternatives might be to lose the escrow account, like to lose the deposit and the rent credits that you've built up, or you know maybe try to work something out with the seller, although they could technically sue you for breach of contract. That's a more difficult situation. The lease option is more at your discretion, like you have the ability to buy, but you don't necessarily have to. So if you do think that something might go sideways where you change your mind or you move or something, the lease option gives you more flexibility that you've not entered into as much of a binding contract. What happens if circumstances change for the owner and they no longer want to follow through on this? They need to get out of this property and you're not ready to buy it. What happens then? Yeah, that's an interesting one, too. I mean, then then you go back to the terms of the contract. You know, do they have they made an ironclad commitment to sell it to you if they try to back out? That gets complicated. You know, the lawyers can get involved. Could you potentially, as the buyer, sue them for breach of contract that they didn't sell you the house? That that becomes a pretty sticky situation. And, and we all know that interest rates fluctuate over time. They can go up. They can go down. We also know that home prices fluctuate over time. They can go up. They can go down. When do you lock in what this house is going to cost at the time of the sale? Do you do that when you make the lease to buy or lease to rent or whatever you call it agreement? Do you do it as you approach the date when you've accumulated enough cash to enter into it? When do you lock in the price you're going to pay? It's often when you sign the initial rent to buy agreement. So, so market, that is a potential so market changes, risk that, market you know, conditions. Hold it, market change, market conditions can change substantially. And if I own a house that suddenly has appreciated in value by five hundred thousand dollars, or gone down by three hundred thousand uh, dollars, wouldn't I, particularly if it goes up, wouldn't I, as the owner, want to get that money and change the price of the house at some point going forward before the uh, buying agreement has been signed? That's a risk on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, if, if you say that, you know, right now when you're signing this agreement, maybe the house is worth $400,000 and maybe you assume that in three years it's going to be worth, I don't know, 425. Uh -huh. If it turns out that it's worth, you know, 500,000 or more, yeah, the, the seller is going to feel bad about entering into that contract. The flip side, if it drops to 350,000, then the buyer might be thinking, well, why am I overpaying for this place? And, and maybe then they want to walk away. So well, uh, yeah, these are risks on both sides. Well, not only that, uh, you're in the in the mortgage business, I think, with bank rate or trying to find uh, mortgage opportunities. If you are signed an agreement for a $400,000 house that is now at the time of purchase going to be $350,000, are you going to find a mortgage company who will give you $400,000 on a home valued at three fifty? Perhaps not. So then you either have to kick in a higher down payment, which is not ideal, or the deal's at risk of falling apart. So yeah, these, these are all risks here to this model and why it's certainly not for everybody. You know, honestly, I think the best approach for most people is not rent to own. It's finding a more traditional path to home ownership. Now that doesn't always have to mean 20% down. You know, like I said, there are FHA loans and VA loans and other options with much lower down payments. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it is really important for people to think through all these angles and, and don't rush into it and make a bad decision. Chantel, unmute yourself. <laughs>
Uh, Chantel, oh, unmute. I'm sorry. Yes, I think I was on mute. I'm sorry. Um, Ted is exactly right. Most real, realtors and experts I speak with say it's really important to, to look into all the other options because usually, most likely, there are um, better options available. Um, Ted mentioned the um, USDA loan, which offers up to 100% financing. There's the FHA loan, which offers a 3.5% of the purchase price for down payment. But also with this construction boom um, and new construction, builders are really keen to shift um, their stock. So many of them are offering um, buy-down loans, which allows a borrower to obtain a lower interest rate for you know, the first three to three years or so. So that gives buyers a little bit more flexibility and wiggle room. Um, but in all these scenarios, the buyer uh, owns the property outright and they're building um, more generational wealth. So in the, inter oh, go ahead, Ted. I think that's a great point that Chantal brings up that idea of the rate buy down. That's something I have been hearing from builders and also sellers, you know, sometimes there's a temporary or even permanent buy down of the rate. It's a way that they're moving their properties. Um, so I think I think that's something for people to think about. There's also this idea about dating the rate and marrying the house. In other words, you can refinance later on. I think it's a viable strategy. I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket just because, you know, yeah, we think mortgage rates are going to fall in the years to come. I mean, right now, the national average for a 30-year fixed is around 7%. Our chief financial analyst, Greg McBride, thinks by the end of this year, maybe it's about five and three-quarter percent. I mean, that would make a meaningful difference. Uh, most existing homeowners have rates below 5%, so a lot of them don't want to sell, and, and that's contributing to the low inventory. But especially the lower we get, I mean, a lot of people think 5 5.5% is a big tipping point. I still think you need to be able to afford the house now, but just because you're signing a 30-year mortgage doesn't mean that you're locked in at that rate for all 30 years. There is definitely the opportunity to refinance if market conditions allow. Chantel, if you enter into one of these rent-to-own agreements, who's responsible for maintenance during that period? The air conditioning goes out. You need a new roof. Uh, you have pl major plumbing repairs. Who's responsible for that? The homeowner who's renting it to you uh, until you own it or you? Uh, that's, that's a good question. Oftentimes, it is the company that covers the maintenance costs. Um, and oftentimes, they also cover the closing costs. So these are some other perks to rent to own um, for buyers who are really competing in a hot market. And as somebody who has chosen this house to rent to own, uh, one would think that you're pretty committed to this house and assume that your life circumstances are going to remain what they are when you made that agreement or get better as time goes on. And you look at the kitchen and you think, you know, that's really dated. I need to rip out the cabinets. I need to do this, new appliances, whatever it may be. Should you engage in that or until you own it, should you just leave it the way it is? Look, I'm not going to tell anyone how they should spend their money um, but certainly, I mean, are you allowed to make, are you allowed to make those changes? You don't own the house. You know, it, it, it depends. I think it's a case by case basis. I think you certainly to do any major upgrades, 
you have to get that, that approved by the company. So uh, maybe you have some sort of shared equity in the home, but it's it, it you don't technically own the entire home. So you are restricted by what you can do there. Okay. And, 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 and to your point, some people might not see this as, you know, a long term situation. That's why they turn to rent to own. Um, a woman I spoke to, she does see herself moving in three to five years. Um, so that's why this was a good decision for her. So clearly cost of living issues, Ted, are, have cut into the American dream. And many young people who would have normally qualified for mortgages 20 years ago can't today. And as this continues, it seems to me, this is going to impact the lending industry, the mortgage industry negatively. There has to be new people coming into the to the equation to, to keep it afloat. Have they been actively concerned about finding remedies to this, or are they just in the business of making money and they really don't care? There's a lot of change going on right now. I mean, housing has been a tumultuous sector in recent years with the Fed's interest rate hikes. You know, that has really dampened home sales and home affordability. And there's just so much going on. There's the whole commission model is under pressure where a recent lawsuit has potentially really upended this whole notion of the 6% commission where 3% goes to the buyer's agent and 3% goes to the seller's agent. You know, I think we have changing tastes in terms of lifestyle trends about, you know, where young people want to live. And, you know, we talk about being close to cities and walkability and, you know, the pandemic changed remote work. And I, I think there's just so much going on here that I think rent to own is is part of just a larger whole, which is people are worried about affordability issues. They're kind of rethinking the whole model. It, it'll be interesting to watch. And, and because this uh, is such a cornerstone, home ownership uh, is a cornerstone of the American dream and something people have been told for their whole lives. This is this is the end goal right here. White, it's house in the suburbs, white picket fence, etc. But now we're facing this shrinking middle class, and home ownership is the also the cornerstone of that. And that's beginning to affect the body politic. Is Congress, are politicians looking for an answer to this? Ted or Chantal? I don't know if I would put all my eggs in that basket. You know, call me a skeptic, but um, I I don't see a a whole lot of agreement there. Um, You know, I think really this comes back to the individual in terms of, you know, what are your financial circumstances? What are your wishes? For some people, homeownership is great. For others, it's probably better to rent longer. You know, I know there's been a lot of innovation in the private sector in terms of investment managers and and these fintechs that are coming in that's another huge change in the mortgage market it's not dominated by the big banks anymore in fact wells fargo was one of the last big banks that was super involved in mortgages and and even they've pulled back significantly in recent years it's really the rocket mortgages and the loan depots of the world that have have really taken over from the big banks so that's another big change and, and Chantal, there's been a lot of discussion in recent months, particularly among the Biden, Biden administration, about the impact of student loan de- debt. Some people are carrying immense amounts of student loan debt that they'll be paying off well into middle age, and they have had to delay a lot of normal life decisions because of that, among them committing to home ownership because they simply can't afford it while they carry this load. 
Has anybody calculated what the impact would be on the home buying and selling market if that disappeared or was lessened, that load? Look, I don't know if I have that data point offhand, but I certainly think that we're getting to a point where people are reimagining um, what home ownership looks like today. You were talking about the starter home of yesteryear. Well, I think people, young people coming up, they're adjusting their expectations. I don't think that they are looking at, they don't see the starter home as a small detached home anymore. Um, many are turning to higher density townhomes and they're also looking outside of these big metros to, to find home, housing that's in their price point. And here's another thing that we haven't talked about, and we don't have much time left to do so. Uh, something, uh, boomers. Boomers are staying put. And CNN Business reports that many boomers, empty nesters who are in their 70s, feel trapped by what used to be their dream homes. Selling and downsizing is not advantageous to some of them because their homes have dramatically increased in value. And that means they face massive capital gains taxes when they sell. Also, there are fewer smaller homes that they like to downsize into in neighborhoods they'd like to live in. So they simply stay put. Is there a, is there a solution to that, Ted? I have 30 seconds. Well, that's a question throughout the age spectrum is, okay, if you sell, where are you going to go next? Prices are up, mortgage rates are up. You know, that boomer example is a more fortunate one where people may be sitting on large cash reserves, but you do have to think through the taxability. But, you know, for a lot of other people, if you have a three or 4% mortgage rate now, and you're going to trade up to a more expensive home with a 7% rate, that's why a lot of people are not moving. And then yeah. low inventory contributes to high prices. Ted Rossman is Senior Industry Analyst for Bankrate. Chantal Alam is a real estate reporter for both the Raleigh News and Observer and the Durham Herald Sun. Thank you both for the hour. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.